HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, this is Kat Johnson, host of Meet and Three. This week we have something special for you. We just launched a new show called The Feed Feed, spotlighting the food we consume when we aren't actually eating. We've collaborated on this podcast with the team behind The Feed Feed, including editorial director Jake Cohen and the co-founders Julie and Dan Resnick. This podcast is going to gather leaders and newbies of food media who create the content we digest and help push the needle of what we cook, bake, and drink. So we're going to play a quick trailer for the show and then stay tuned for one of their first episodes. Enjoy. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering this sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time and producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, that I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes it's out there. And, and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. 
Today, we're diving into food styling with some of the industry's most iconic forces. They are food stylists. They are recipe developers. They are cookbook authors. We are with Susan Spungen and Erin McDowell. Hi. 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 (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. I want to jump right in and know a little bit about how your careers came to be. When we think of food styling, it can be this revered, like, super exciting industry that everyone want to break everyone wants to break into but many people have no idea like how did you actually start so why don't we start with Susan um you obviously you've done such a like broad range of styling jobs from Julie and Julia to the Bon App cookie covers New York Times like insane how did it begin well i think like Aaron i do a lot more than just food styling that's just one aspect of of what I do and one aspect of my career. Um, but so for me, I mean, actually, I was in the actual food business for quite a few years and thought I need to do something more creative and was kind of learned about food styling. This is way before social media. I'm kind of old. <laughs> so I did, you know, I had to just actually read an article in the New York Times food section. When I was, uh, I won't say the year, but it was a long oh, time we want ago. The year. <laughs> and I knew nothing about this job. So I was initially attracted to it. It sounded like it was creative, sounded like the money was pretty good. And, you know, it sounded like not the restaurant business, which is what I was looking for at the time. And, but I didn't become a food stylist. I became the food editor of Martha Stewart Living instead. So, and part of that was styling, especially in the beginning, before I had a whole department, I um, started out just styling and, you know, developing recipes and styling for the very early issues of, of Martha Stewart Living. So I was doing what I was love, what I wanted to do and what I was loving doing, but then I, it was so much more and then it grew into so much more. Then years later, I became a freelance food stylist after I left that job again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a slightly different experience coming into it. One thing I have to say at the beginning is that I went to the same culinary school that Jake did, <laughs> though we were not there at the same time. And um, I s- quickly realized when I went to pastry school and culinary school that I didn't want to work in restaurants. I knew I needed some restaurant experience, so I got some, but I just could see that that was not my path. And I'd always had interest in other things. I'd loved to write and I loved art, but I was not good at any art <laughs> was the problem. I had seriously thought about going to art school when I discovered that I had an interest in pastry. And so when I was in school, I sort of realized that media gave me the opportunity to be creative, to kind of get out that artistic side. And then because I had this strong interest in writing, the as Susan alluded, there is a little bit of money in food styling. And so I figured that one hand could sort of feed the other. I could food style, and then that would allow me to write. And um, then it's been very synergistic for me. People would hire me as a food stylist, and then they would hire me to develop a recipe or to write. And um, a lot of my relationships have kind of gone that way. So... Um, I definitely, when I was in school and deciding what I wanted to do, I was looking up to Susan's work and like looking at what people were doing. 
and uh, and I'm trying not to fangirl, but I'm oh, a little bit of a fangirl over here. <laughs> of course, it's mutual. <laughs> yeah, it's like Erin, you've become kind of synonymous with. Uh, pie mainly, but uh, just all desserts. You do a crazy amount of work. I remember, uh, honestly, I couldn't think of Food 52 without thinking about you and all of your work in the pastry realm. How did that connection come to be? Well, that's something, and I would love to hear Susan's opinion on this too. Something that I think is really interesting in this um, world is that because there aren't a lot of Everyone who wants you to be a food stylist wants you to have experience, almost everybody. But then how do you get experience if no one's going to hire you? And, you know, that's and that was where I was at. I was working in a job where I had to work on photo shoots, sort of like you were describing. And I would do a little styling here and there, but not always. And um, when I first moved to New York, one of the first emails I sent was to just info at food52.com. And I had been using the site for a long time. And I said, hey, I live in New York now. So if you ever need an extra hand in the kitchen, fully expecting not to ever hear anything back. And then the next week or so, somebody called in sick and they needed somebody like in a pinch. And so I went in and I worked, but they couldn't... um, it was, you know, unpaid for a little while. And that is something that I have tried to, I feel strongly that you should be paid for the work that you do. Mm -hmm. However, when Food52 was asking, they were giving me that opportunity to get a little experience, to get in there really hands-on. And then it wasn't that long, they did start paying me, of course. And so I kept saying to my parents, my dad in particular was like, you shouldn't work for free. You shouldn't work for free. And I kept saying, man, dad, I really think this site's going to be something. Like, I really think this is a smart thing to do. I just have to go with my gut. And then it was the next year, Food 52 won a James Beard Award. And, you know, they were kind of making, and they definitely gave me a huge opportunity to really dive in and get my feet wet with kind of building on the experience that I already had. So I'm very grateful for that. I love it. <laughs> what, what did you want my opinion on well, whether one should work for free? Yes. I mean, I I've, I occasionally hire somebody when there isn't a budget yeah. to assist me for free, but then I try to make it sort of a one-time thing. If you work with for me once for free, then if I call you again, I'm going to yes. pay you. But that way I can also see what your skill level is and, and things I like agree. That. I do the same thing. And uh, not only am I still willing to work for free for certain projects. Um, yes, same. <laughs> and yes, I agree. One should be paid. One shouldn't take advantage of people. However, I do um, often hire assistants for the first. I, I, if somebody approaches me, especially if they have very little experience or only if they have little to no experience, I will ask them if they're willing to uh, intern is the word that I used usually, or trail. And um, because that's a way for us to have a day-long interview for me to see what their skills are very quickly, to see if we're a good fit, and also to give them an opportunity to see what it's all about. Because it's a very different thing than people think, I think, working on a set. it's It requires a specific kind of... Um, Flexibility. Absolutely. <laughs> that not everyone has, especially people who have professional cooking experience. Oh, that's true. And sometimes people who have worked in restaurants are the worst assistants because they think it's about production and speed. And that's not, it's, it's actually the opposite. So in the past, when I've had restaurant cooks, I've had to slow them down and say, no, 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 no. Like you turn your back and they've chopped all of the fennel or whatever it is. And you're like, no, 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 no. I no, needed no, no. one whole. It's like, show me the cut. <laughs> <Yeah>. Show <laughs> me the cut. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, we obviously kind of just dove right into getting into the industry. You had just built up a name for yourself as a food editor at Martha Stewart. 
you go freelance, how do you break into film? What is film <laughs> like? What is food styling for movies like? Well, I mean, that's been a fun aspect of my career because I've done so few of them over so many years. Name and them. yet, <laughs> name, name them all. Well, okay, in order Julie and Julia. Uh, which was a great start. Iconic. And I and I should tell you how that one came to be, but first I'll just list them. Julie and Julia, and then um, Eat... Oh, gosh. I don't remember now, because they didn't all come out in that same order that we shot them. So, But I think I went right from... Uh, yeah, okay. Julie and Julia, Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, it's complicated. Oh, that's one of my Oh, favorites. my God. <laughs> and then oh, Labor that. Day. Which not a lot of people saw, except pie enthusiasts, maybe. I had a really great pie moment in that movie, but the movie otherwise had its shortcomings. <laughs> um, and then I actually have a documentary I worked on for PBS that will be coming out soon, where we did some recreations of scenes from uh, the turn of the last century. So that'll be interesting, too. And a, and a TV show called Feed the Beast, which also didn't go more than one season, but oh well. <laughs> um, so, But for Julie and Julia, how did I get into it? Well, one day my phone rang. And, it was Meryl. Huh? It was Meryl. No, Nora. Nora. <laughs> no, oh Nora. Oh, casual, casual. She literally called me on my phone. I think Amanda gave her my information. Um, Amanda Hesser from Food 52, because... Amanda was central to the story, actually. there was She even played herself in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I knew Amanda from the Times. And, um, and so I, I think it was her and Ed Levine had both... Well, Ed Levine likes to take credit for it, but I think it was Amanda, because they both said they recommended me. So I um, got a call and literally was... Hi, this is Nora Efron, and I was like, I have a friend that like puts voices on and like tries to joke me, and I thought, <laughs> I thought Andy, you know, and it wasn't Andy, it was actually Nora Efron, and she said, oh, I felt bad because you know she has that book, I feel bad about my neck. She actually said, I feel bad because um, I couldn't. You didn't write me back, and then I realized I forgot the dot com or something. So she had tried to email me, and I didn't respond because she had typed the address in wrong, and. Uh, and so she called me, <laughs> and she said, uh, you know, I asked people who should I get to work on my movie. And I think I'm quoting directly here. This is the way she talked, very, like, natural and friendly. And, and who should I get to work on my movie? And I'm making this movie about Julia Child. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. You know, I mean, I didn't even have to think about it. And I had no movie experience, but I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm, yes, yes, yes. Which is generally my attitude towards most things. Just say yes. Yes. <laughs> now, I think a really funny conversation is you both are so incredibly talented at creating these beautiful tablescapes. What is the difficulty when you then have to style for a movie and it has to be half eaten or it has to be the end of the meal? <sighs> well, there's all kinds of challenges that come with movies, not just that. Um, but actually, there were some times in Julie and Julie where I had to make like the boeuf bourguignon was supposed to be burnt because she left it on the stove all night and it was... Uh, it was hard to make food look bad, and actually, I did. I made that one at home because I had to have it ready for the next morning. And I, I thought, well, I'm just going like, to leave it out all night so it looks bad, you know. And uh, I actually left the lid on the Le Creuset, and it just stayed warm all night, <laughs> and it didn't look as bad as I wanted it to. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that keeps things hot a really long time. But it is hard to make food look bad. And same thing in Labor Day. They wanted the pie to look like really messed up and it was so hard to do that. The director kept saying, no, more more messed up, more messed up. And I'm like, 
Okay. I was just like slapping dough all over it. Finding every urge in your body. It was so hard to make it look bad, you know. So that that's always a little bit challenging because that often happens in a movie. There's the script calls for very specific things, and the food has to really speak for itself. So you know, you can't say we want to like really messed up looking pie and have a beautiful pie. Darn. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit, a go-to shop for anyone interested in natural wines and boutique spirits. There's a large selection of everything from orange wines, pet gnats, and reds from around the world. Whether visiting the shop in person or online, looking for a gift for a loved one or that everyday dependable bottle, you're sure to find lots of interesting wines at Henry's. There's free shipping on orders over $300 on the website henrys.nyc and case discounts when you visit the store located in Bushwick. Cheers. I'd love to start to talk about the kind of landscape in food media right now. Um, You both have experience in digital and print. What are the differences in terms of how you approach recipe development, food styling? Obviously, Erin, I feel like you've done pretty much the backwards. We started digital and now you've kind of jumped into print, cookbooks, New York Times. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's interesting with digital. The the thing I love about digital is that you're not working as far ahead, which sounds like a little... I love working ahead. I like, you know, knowing what's going on. I'm a planner. But, you know, when you're working for the internet, you know, it's um, September right now, and I could just now be thinking of ideas for October for the internet. But uh, when it comes to print, you know, those things have to be done often way far ahead. Christmas or, is done. Exactly. Or if it isn't done, it's a crazy rush to get it done and it feels like, you know, stress on toast. So um, so I think that that's one of the biggest differences for me is kind of the, especially as a recipe developer and as a food stylist, there's a little more leniency with digital Um, You know, if we make a mistake, we often could reshoot it. If you make a mistake and you're on a print shoot, you know, you're just not getting hired again, probably, because they need to run the story. Now, of course, there are exceptions where they might redo something. But um, but I I think that's one of the things for me, for sure. And and also um, when you're in print, there's sort of this understanding that there's a given readership and and that may or may not be true, but you know, a certain number of people are subscribing, a certain number of people are picking up that newspaper, that magazine. Whereas on the internet, things can get lost very quickly or go viral or go viral. Mm -hmm. But that that's exactly what I was going to say, which is this very tricky business of making, whether it's as a recipe developer, as a writer or as a food stylist, what can you do to make that image worth clicking on for people? And that is something that I feel like sometimes I really have it figured out and I just, I know. And then there's other times that I just think the best image. You actually said that once with an image that you styled one of my recipes for the Times and it had this beautiful caramel topping that she pulled to make. The shortbread cookies. Right. And they they chose to run kind of the full frosted cookie so that you could see what it was. But both Susan and I were like, look at that caramel pull. Like that is where it's at. But you know. Very luscious. I think they eventually did run that picture too. And it's more just like sometimes I think I know for sure and I'm I'm surprised. Right. It's true. That's the other thing is that I think especially the digital landscape is ever 
ever changing. So I'll ask this to both of you, but to start, Aaron, what has been one recipe that has gone viral that you were a little surprised about? And likewise, what's one recipe that kind of floundered, even though you were like so in love with it? Well, sometimes recipes that I love don't do as well because they're more complicated. And that's something that I have to just own up to fully that I... I want to make things that people are going to make. And sometimes that means making things a little simpler or more direct. But at the same time, (laughs) I can't ignore the fact that sometimes I really want to do a showstopper. So for example, something that didn't do as well as I had hoped was like, I did this crazy three-tiered pie once for Food 52. And it was a Thanksgiving dinner all in one. Mm -hmm. So the bottom was a turkey pot pie. The middle was creamed greens and the top was cranberry sauce. Oh my God. I love that. Baked inside a hot water crust. And it, you know, because it's in a hot water crust, those are very sturdy. And I remember it it though, actually really well. It was that very deep. Yes. And I baked them in spring form pans. And the thing was, is it was, it did achieve that thing where people wanted to click on it. Because they wanted to see what it was, but it didn't achieve that thing of people wanting to make it. It was a true It totally was. I think I even used that in the But it didn't do article. well and in it, terms I mean, it of... definitely got some attention, but yeah. it didn't get that. The way that you get that kind of lasting attention is it's not only something that is appealing, but I think something that also drives interest in another way, whether it's they want to make it, they want to share it with their friends, they want to print it, yeah. they want to email it, they want to whatever. Um, and one recipe that I did that I didn't think would necessarily do as well were these um, cheddar beer rolls that I did for the New York Times. And it was one of my first recipes I did for the Times, and it performed really well. It came up in their top 10 recipes of the month and all of these things, and it was going, going, going. And I was just surprised because it was yeast. And sometimes people are scared of yeast, but mm. the rest of the recipe was pretty simple. So it made it was that combination and the for the photograph for the styling which I did not do but the styling it was you know golden brown and cheesy and that's going to win every time if it's done properly so it was kind of a full force of everything working together to become that successful thing and then of course your own promotion of it trying to get it out there the place that's publishing it them promoting it it's it's a perfect storm Susan yeah Oh, same question. Yes. Um, wait, could you just rephrase it? So yeah. just in your career, what are some examples of uh, a recipe you developed or style that you were expecting to like explode and floundered and likewise one that you were, oh, this is great, and then it ended up exploding? Well, I don't have as much experience actually on the digital side as, as Aaron does, um, but uh, I mean... Really, like my own Instagram <laughs> is probably my best example. And then more recently for the Times, and I just want to uh, echo what Erin uh, was saying about you know the fast and slow aspect of digital versus print. Uh, one of the things I, I actually really love the combination of doing things that'll come out months later, but also things that might come out a couple weeks after you turned it in. And you know the Times being a great example of that, and also being able to get that direct feedback from the audience uh, in the form of comment, not just clicks, but comments. Um, I think it's like super valuable as not just for a stylist, I think I'm talking more for recipes that I've published there. Uh, It's fantastic to be able to see almost in real time how people are responding to something. And so you can kind of tailor what you're doing a little bit, not, not in order to get clicks, but to give the people what they want, you know, um, and see what is sort of resonating with people. 
Um, Because I think that's what it's all about, whether you're writing a book or doing recipes for a digital platform or whatever. You want people to make your food. So as much as we want someone to make a turducken pie, you know, they might not. I think it's like people really want things. They like... I think they want the thing they can do quickly. You mm. know, they, they like, I can make this today or tonight, which is the cheddar beer rolls. Yeah, that probably. you can see it in your immediate future. Exactly. Yeah. Not like someday yeah, yeah. I'm going to make you this. You probably have some beer, you probably have some cheese, and you yeah. probably have an old packet so, of yeast. Yes. <laughs> so I'm trying to think. Uh, I, I actually can't think of something I thought would do well that didn't because, again, I don't have that the kind of vast experience with that as, as, as Aaron does. But one of the things on my personal... Uh, Instagram that's been sort of viral has been the uh, the cranberry pomegranate tart. That was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> that was the first thing that came to mind. And it makes me so happy, like every Thanksgiving and Christmas, seeing people making that tart. And, um, you know, Julie. Julie kids. makes it all the time. She well, loves May yes, makes May it. May makes it. It's yes. so cute. And last year, everybody got very creative with the... Um, you know, direct the application of the seeds, and you can tell. I think May like put them on like one by one kind of thing. Where it was for me, it's all for like, everyone listening. Sprinkle, obviously, sprinkle. Julie Resnick, our co-founder, and her daughter May, who is a blossoming baker. Yeah. So, and that you know, I mean, I guess the thing about going viral too is that um, then it becomes it's out there, and and people start claiming it as their own, and that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is. Sort of depressing. Mm, but. Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> but also, they saw it somewhere. They might not. That didn't give the attribution. And when you know that you created something, because you know exactly how you created it. Yeah, sure. Sometimes people think of the same idea, but you know, I don't think this was one of those things. But it's out there, so I'm happy it's out there. You know. So you both just touched upon Instagram, um, and I think this is a really great transition to, especially talk about. Obviously, two industry leaders that both started in different times. And how do you see the landscape in terms of the combination of social media and print, digital, just publications in general, as well as how have you used your personal Instagrams um, to help your careers? You want to start? Sure. Well, I think we all know it's super important, whether you're a print magazine, a brand, uh, your own personal Instagram. It's. It, I think it's become an incredibly important, uh, you know, facet of of our all of our. What's, it, what's the word? Careers, brands, whatever. I mean, I. Luckily, I. I mean, I don't have like a gigantic following. I have a medium, small, growing. You got, the, you got that blue check mark. Girl. I did. I got the. That's another story for how I got that. But how did you get it? Well, I was getting spammed a lot, and I kept reporting it. So honestly, it was to protect my account. So I don't know where my blue check mark came from. Yeah. It just appeared overnight. I kept and reporting. It shocked me. I kept reporting, reporting, reporting because I was getting these all this like Russian spam like every day. And I just, it was disturbing. So I just kept reporting it. And so I think that's why. I don't think there's any other reason. Because I think a lot of people, I don't understand the blue check, but a lot of time it's, I mean, it's verified, meaning they're trying to protect larger accounts who might get hacked. I mm-hmm. think that's the main purpose of it. So people like put all this cachet on it, but it's really, I, I think that's Instagram's main purpose for doing it. So, because it's mostly celebrities who have big accounts and whatever. I don't know how you got it. I have no, it's the mystery of the blue Just check. popped up one day and I was like, ooh, well, hello. Yeah, yeah. So Welcome anyway, um, you know, I, when I started, I didn't, of course, know at all what I was doing or, you know, 
what I should be doing with Instagram. And, you know, I think I've sort of slowly gotten better at it. Uh, but I think it's really important. And, uh, you know, for me, I've had a different kind of career first. It's like I'm not like starting on Instagram like many people are. But I try to use it to, you know, communicate with my audience, to uh, enhance what I do in other places, to um, also actually really have fun with it. I find it to be a really fun form of self-expression. And having had a visual arts background, I really love, like, having this sort of visual thing. And I know my feed isn't as, quote, unquote, curated as uh, some are. I kind of, it's all very pretty real, like what I'm actually cooking. I rarely create something for a post. I should. I don't have time. So generally, if I'm doing something interesting or making something interesting... I will um, post. Although the times that I have said, you know, today I'm going to do something and create a post, those have been some of my more successful ones. Like people just love the swirly meringue things mm. that I've done. They just go crazy when they see swirly meringue. So those have been things where I've like, well, I think actually I did those little eggs first a few years ago. Iconic. Because I just... Iconic. For I, people who don't know, obviously these are white meringues that you then fill with lemon curd yeah. so they look like eggs. Right. It's so cute. So I did it first like a couple years ago because it was Easter and I was like, oh, I, th- I just always wanted to do this. So I'm just going to make these meringues and, and I just didn't take a lot of time to shoot them and I put it up and it got a really strong response. So then I kind of like improved that recipe and the photo like a year or two later and it got an even stronger response. And then one day I had some leftover uh, beet syrup from making candied beets. And I thought, oh, what would happen if I swirled that into the meringue? Because I was like, what am I going to do with beet syrup? But I couldn't throw it away. And then that was a whole nother meringue moment. Anyway, I think I've Hashtag done meringue off. moment. A meringue moment, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean... I love. I actually really like Instagram. Sometimes I hate it. We all have a love hate relationship with it. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> I I was gonna say sort of the same thing. I it was never my intention to use Instagram or Facebook or anything as part of my career, but it also didn't exist. You mm-hmm. know, in the early days of my career. Um, well, Facebook did, but Instagram mm-hmm. and Instagram in particular is sort of that. It, it's made for this career because the way that you get people to click to do whatever is to show them the beautiful picture of the food. So by nature, um, that is definitely one of the more, I feel like I didn't intend to ever use Instagram the way that I have, but I'm so grateful that it exists because it is responsible for a huge amount of work that I've gotten in my career. You know, I have a professional website with a portfolio and everything. I have not received an email from that form on that website in years. I get direct messages from people on Instagram saying, hey, we'd like to hire you uh, for this job, for that job. And that's just one example of how it's changing things. It's making people a lot more accessible, but also to speak to something that Susan said, right now I'm writing um, a second cookbook and it's fascinating how much giving little behind the scenes kind of uh, tidbits really engages the people that are following me. They want to see it. They want to know what's coming. And I remember when I was writing my first book, 
that the attitude from my publisher was sort of like, yeah, post things, but maybe don't give too much away. Don't say what Lock it down. is. Don't. And this time they sort of gave me a little more permission to shout it from the rooftops because the reality is it's a very full space. There's a lot going on in the Instagram world, in the food world, in the cookbook world. So anything you can do to kind of sing your song a little louder, you know, is just going to help. And and um, that's been really useful for me and one of the things that I enjoy the most. And at the end of the day, it still kind of comes back. The reason I write recipes, the reason I write books is that I want to help people want to cook. I want you to get in the kitchen. I don't want you to be afraid of baking. I want all of those things. And, you know, Instagram and social media really allows you to reach out to those people directly. You know, you teach a cooking class or a baking class, you're there with 15 people, but you do a post and maybe 40,000 people see it. I mean, you can't really ask for more than that. And that direct connection and also the ability to do things that are just for yourself. I mean, I am also a freelancer. I'm a hired hand. But, you know, Instagram is my space. And what's interesting is that the more that I share tidbits of my own life or things that I want to do, you know, I make a cake just for fun that looks like my dog, silly <laughs> things like that. But those things show people who I am and not just the people following me, but also the people that might potentially hire me. It gives them a sense of what I might bring to the table that's different. And so it's just another thing that, you know, is kind of helping you. All the wheels are turning together. Amazing. Aaron said it much better than me. <laughs> you guys are both incredibly articulate. Um, I have a little bit of a lightning round Ooh. Um, oh, no. of questions. Okay. Uh, so we'll just kind of go back and forth. First being, when's the last time you really impressed yourself with how good a recipe you, you developed was? Like, <laughs> oh, like just name it and be like, wow, this is I'm good at my job. I mean, for me, it's been pretty recent with the the pie book that I'm writing because pie is so finicky. And to, this isn't a lightning response. I'm supposed to be going faster. But basically, when I write a recipe just in my notebook and then I go in the kitchen and it's perfect, I mean, like I, I, I retest it. I don't just test it one time. But when it's perfect that first time, I'm just like, mm, mm, I know my thing. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty recently, I mean, and it's the same thing. It's like when the uh, results meet the the concept uh, right on the, you know, and you don't have to tinker with it endlessly, and it's just kind of great right out of the park. So, yeah. What has been the last disaster in the kitchen? Like, total, like, just like Also a very recent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had one, too, very recent. Describe, and, and I want all the gory details. Well, I can't tell you everything because it's a sort of secret project. But, um, you know, often clients want something particular. And actually, I got dug this hole for myself because I sh- made a Pinterest board to show them my ideas. <laughs> and they, they wanted me to do something on that Pinterest board. I just could not make it work. And I can't make it work. So I think it's too hard. And I think it's too hard for people to do at home. If it's too hard for me, it's too hard for people at home. Very true. My most recent fail was in the early testing for a Crocombouche project I just did for the New York Times. Oh my God. It was and a sorting hat from Harry it, Potter. It, it was, was insane. It, I finally revealed my nerdery to the world and how much I love Harry Potter. And I was put in Hufflepuff, which I still have a little bit of mixed emotions about. But again, the commenters on New York Times, they said, I'm a true Hufflepuff. So you got to believe those commenters, I guess. Anyway, um, I made uh, the early test of it. And I was trying to do it without a mold to see how tall I could make it and still make it somewhat realistic for people at home. 
And so I built the croquembouche, all the cream puffs on itself. And it was just an incredibly hot and humid day. Did all the spun sugar, went away for like 30 minutes, came back. The spun sugar had completely melted and it was just like dripping on my floor. The croquembouche was all sad. I hadn't (laughs) taken a picture yet. It was Uh. just like, and then I turned away for another 10 minutes and my assistant's dog, who was over that day, was on his hind legs eating cream puffs. Oh my gosh. The top of the croquembouche. <laughs> Luckily, it was oh the first test, God. and we still had a ways to go to make it work. So the dog just, didn't get too sick. He actually didn't, <laughs> but he did have like some little blue Ravenclaw pastry cream <laughs> around it. his mouth for Love it. a little bit. What's exciting you in food right now? Whether it be a meal at a restaurant, an article you read. These are hard lightning rounds. This isn't like, do you like black or white? (laughs) I think one of the things that excites me the most about food in general, and I'm more of a baker, but in the food space in particular, is the accessibility to a variety of vegetables. That is something that I felt like when I was getting my professional training and when I was working in restaurants, it was always so great. Like, look at all these vegetables I can have. That gives me so many more options in cooking and gives me tons of ideas, but I didn't feel like that was the way in the grocery store. And now even when I go home to Kansas, where I'm from, I walk through the grocery store sometimes. I'm like, "Mm, look, they got broccoli rub now. Oh, look, they got that. You know, and it's like, it's just so exciting to see that variety coming in. And that's something that I never get tired of eating. So that's Well, actually, I was, I want to echo what she said, because I just did an interview um, yesterday about my new book, which is coming out in March. And I Yay. haven't been shouting it from the rooftops yet, but I'm going to start soon. Yeah, starting, now. starting, starting here. Starting now. What's the title? It's called Open Kitchen. Love Ooh. it. Um, and uh, so we were talking about, on a slightly different uh, topic, like you know Amazon, and just the accessibility that everybody has to what we used to call specialty ingredients, where, you know, I mean, not that I want to push Amazon as an idea, but I do love for myself and for my audience that they can get whatever they want very easily. And actually I was talking to someone in Birmingham and you know, that used to be a hard place to get things, but now the whole Meredith food studio is down there and they just order everything in and it comes easily and more or less at the same price as you would get in a store, possibly even cheaper. And, and to echo also what Aaron was saying, not just the access to, both produce and other, ingre- you know, non-perishable uh, ingredients, but people's openness to using them Absolutely. and trying them. Because I think, you know, even in my Martha years, it would be like, ooh, fennel, I don't know. I know it's the second time I've mentioned fennel. I do like fennel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there would be certain things where it would be like, no, no, no. But we also helped to, at, at the magazine, at Martha Stewart Living, popularize certain things, including baking parchment, uh, you know, where people were like, we don't know. No, like, they didn't used to have baking parchment in the supermarket when I first started at Martha, but we were like, parchment, parchment, parchment. And that's how people learn how to that try new things and use new things. Like, we in the media have to expose them to it. So I'm not a fan of being safe in media. We are there to, for people to give people things to aspire to and to teach them about new things. So I mean, I just remember when I went to culinary school that I would tell people I was going to culinary school and it was pretty crazy to a lot of the people that I was telling right. it to. I mean, not completely out of the realm of possibility, but they would think, oh, you're going to be a chef. And when I would tell people what I wanted to do, you know, just this glazed look. Well, now I tell people that I'm a food stylist and they're like, oh, food styling. And they know all about it. Uh-huh. And that's even just an example of how yeah. much the landscape has changed. Right. That 
I used to have to kind of like describe my day-to-day life to people and now they're just like well, I know everything you're doing and I know all of the stuff. And it's, yeah, but it's, people still say, oh, well, do you shellac turkeys? I mean, they, they, you know, they yes. read some article somewhere and then they just think they know everything about it. And, <laughs> and they all want to hear the weird stories. And <laughs> um, Who's killing it on the gram? Who are you following that you really oh love right now? Jake <sighs> Cohen. Oh, plug <laughs> oh, me. Love, love me some Jake. Um, let's see. I really like a lot of, I follow a lot of people who are elsewhere in the world that are very inspiring to me. I like um, Julie Jones in Mm. the UK, and she does a lot of pie, love her stuff. I love, um, there's this amazing food stylist in Australia that I'm obsessed with. I've never met her in real life. Her name is Kristen Jenkins. She works for Delicious, and... I love her work. She and one of the editors, Phoebe Rosewood, Mm -hmm. who also has a great account, um, they did a book a few years ago, and every single photograph in it is was like giving me life (laughs) and serious inspo. So those are, and I I think it's nice to see what they're doing elsewhere in Mm -hmm. the world too, not so much to bring inspiration back here, but because it does sometimes take your mind to a different place creatively, which is useful. Oh, gosh, there's so many people I follow. I'm having trouble conjuring anything up right now. But I agree with, I love following Australian people, um, especially because their seasons are opposite. So when somebody is trying to, when you're someone who's a recipe developer and you're trying to think about winter in the summer, it's kind of helpful to remember. I love that. Oh, my God. I would have never thought about that. That's That's such a great explanation. It's like they're doing citrus and all, you know, stuff while we're eating strawberries and peaches and it's like total opposite season so for me i I, I, it's just nice for a change of pace and makes me feel a little cooler in the summer (laughs) um but i actually don't follow Kristen. i do follow phoebe um follow Kristen. you're going to enjoy it (laughs) i mean of course i love following mimi you know and her dreamy dreamy life Mm. and it's, it's just a beautiful um beautiful feed and I, I like. I really, you know, enjoyed following her fantasy life. <laughs> I mean, lots of other people too, but that's just one that's popping into my head. And it is a fantasy. It's so incredible. <laughs> okay, Susan. Yeah. F. Mary Kill. Chocolate chip cookies, meringue cookies, or rugula. <laughs> Wait, what was the first thing? You said? It's like, you know, fuck Mary Kill. Have you ever heard that? Where it's like you have to pick one for. Uh, should we do Aaron first? I don't so know. Can, yes, I'll do it right, Aaron, I'm too for old. Your, yours are pumpkin pie, lemon meringue pie, and peach pie. Okay, kill pumpkin pie. What? I'm not that into it. Oh Never have been. I mean, I will eat it once a year. It's my favorite uh, pie. Kill really? Oh, oh my god! Now that I know that, I'm like, going to bring you so many pumpkin. Even pies. like bad quality, like store, like not even good grocery store, like bad grocery store pumpkin pie. Like oh no, and I appreciate that. Like for me, but of those choices, that's what it would be. Um, I think I would. Sorry, this is funnier than I thought it was going to be. Um, I think I would marry peach pie. Just, you know, like classic. You're not going to be upset with peach pie. And then I think, you know, I'd F the lemon meringue because I just feel like Uh. toasty. Get a little little action with the smeary meringue. We talked about how beautiful and sexy meringue is already from Susan. It's my absolute favorite. So I agree with that. But okay, (laughs) now that I understand how we play. Try me again. So it's chocolate chip cookies, meringue cookies, and rugula. Oh, kill rugula. Kill rugula. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and then what were first. the other two? Uh, chocolate chip and meringue. 
I don't know. I might have to rethink it. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to kill meringue to, despite what I said from an eating point of view. Um, I guess I could see that. Yeah. Choice. I like lemon meringue pie, but meringues on their own can be a bit sweet. So I'm going to, I'm going to kill meringue. I'm going to, uh, marry Rogalach, I guess. Mm. After she just killed Jewish. it. Jewish. Nice Jewish boy. Jewish. <laughs> I feel like that sums up marriage in a lot of ways. <laughs> F the chocolate chip cookie. Definitely. Always. Always. But it ha- must be warm. <laughs> uh, indeed. <laughs> Perfect. That was a great question. <laughs> but, I mean, that was the true lightning question. Oh, yeah, that was, that the, was the lightning round. <laughs> so now to kind of wrap this all up, where do you think the conversations around food media, food styling are going to be in a couple of years? And where do you see your careers um, growing in that space? Well, I guess it depends if they kill Instagram likes, right? Is that going to affect our lives? I don't really know. Is that going to change Instagram all over again? Um I mean, I I hope to keep doing what I'm doing and doing it more and doing it better. That's what I always want. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I am just, I feel so lucky that I'm able to do what I love every single day and uh, that it's taken me to such unique places, certainly not to movie sets like Susan, but it's taken me to the White House. It's wow. taken me to, to different. <laughs> and it was the White House with our last president. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. just to be clear, it was a little more exciting than. <laughs> um, but it's taken me to so many places that I wouldn't have thought. And, uh, and I think the thing that is fascinating to me about the space as it is right now is that we talked a little bit about how to break into it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the majority of my success that I've achieved career-wise has been due to word of mouth. So it's hysterical to me that there are these amazing ways that you can get yourself out there. At the end of the day, it still sort of comes back to you know, just being yourself, being pleasant to work with, being bringing something to the table, which I mentioned earlier, and all of these things that we talked about, social media and the creative aspect of our jobs sort of allow us to do that. So I just feel so lucky to keep doing it. And what I hope to see in the spectrum of this world is just more diversity. I'm loving the amount of diversity that is starting to pop up, but it feels like it's been a long time coming. And it's just so exciting to me that I feel like, sort of to Susan's point, it is up to the publications to kind of set the tone for what people need to learn about. And what is amazing to me is that I felt like for years I would flip through food magazines and sometimes I would learn something new, but a lot of it was stuff that I was aware of because I'd been in the professional food world for a long time. Now I open things up and it is just someone I've never heard of, a place in the world I've never heard of, a dish I've never heard of. And that to me is what's so exciting about food is that it affects absolutely everybody everybody has some connection to it. And so I just am excited to see more and more of that coming through in this world. What a wonderful way to end this discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Erin. Thanks, Jake. I'm yes. so excited. Your um, maiden voyage. Uh, yes, for sure. <laughs> um, anything you'd like to plug? Obviously, tell us about your book. Tell yep. us about your book. <laughs> well, my book comes out, I think it's March 3rd, and it's called uh, Open Kitchen, Inspired food for casual gatherings. Oh, I love that. And I'm excited. Uh, my book doesn't come out till next fall, so it's a full year away, and it's so far away that I can't actually even say what the title is yet, but I should be able to very soon. Is it a soon. pun? 
It's not a pun, okay, but it is just... Okay, you were fishing for puns at one point. I was just, like, looking for... those. Are, there's a lot of puns inside the book. Love it. Like, Love uh, a pun. Yeah, I knew you would. In <laughs> fact, I channeled you a little bit so, for some of those. But the it's a pie book, and it is um, really uh, very thorough. <laughs> we'll, put it, we'll put it that way. It is really, I hope, going to be different than uh, books out there currently on the subject. So I'm very excited. And it comes out in the fall of 2020. Amazing. Thank you both so much. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, be sure to follow the feed feed at the feed feed. You could follow me at Jake Cohen and we'll see you next time. The feed feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.